Welcome to Skim This. After months of negotiations, Democrats are finally coming together on a more than $1 trillion spending bill. But if you hoped the U.S. might finally pass paid family leave, prepare to be disappointed. World leaders are also trying to figure out a way to literally prevent planetary ruin. We'll skim the stakes heading into big U.N. climate talks. And later... Now we have a new North Star to help bring the metaverse to life. Oh, hey, Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook's new name is apparently Meta. But if this week taught us anything, it's that whistleblowers, journalists, and politicians aren't about to let the company just rebrand and walk away from the mess it's caused. We'll dive into what the Facebook papers tells us about the company and its impact on society. And finally, after spilling the tea on Facebook, we'll end on some good news about internet culture. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, our first story is simultaneously fast moving and moving ridiculously slow. We're talking about that multi-trillion dollar piece of legislation that Democrats on Capitol Hill are still trying to pass. It's a little hard to skim, since it covers so many different items, from funding related to climate change to healthcare proposals to pre-K education. So to help us break it all down, we've called up Alice Miranda Alstein. She's a healthcare reporter at Politico and covers Capitol Hill. Hey, Alice, thanks so much for joining us. Can you walk us through where we're at right now with the social spending bill? So the White House put out a framework this morning that was the result of negotiating for weeks, especially with some of the more conservative members of the party who've had problems with the scope and size of the bill as it stood for the last few months. And they put out this framework that doesn't mean the deal is done. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill say they're still fighting for major changes because this deal that the White House put out this morning completely leaves out reforms to prescription drug prices, completely leaves out adding dental care to Medicare, and a lot of other things that Democrats have been fighting for for a while. But there is hope that this will lead toward a vote. We are really interested in one of the things that seems to have been left out, which is paid family leave. What's the fate of that proposal right now? So it is out of the bill for now, although some of the champions of that proposal, such as Senator Gillibrand, are still fighting to have it included, especially during this terrible pandemic when so many people have really felt the lack of paid family leave and paid sick leave not being guaranteed to all workers. There's a lot of outrage at the idea that this could be left behind. But because Senator Manchin and others have not only insisted on the bill being smaller overall, they've been opposed to some of these provisions in particular that expand these social safety net programs. And so they were able to find an agreement on a lot of other pieces, but not on this piece. What is the impact of having no legislation, including paid family leave anymore? It feels like this is now going to mean a stark reality for women, people with chronic conditions, caring needs, that they're not going to get even the prospect of paid family leave guaranteed or paid sick leave guaranteed anytime soon. Absolutely. And that is what the lawmakers are saying who are fighting to put this back in. And there's a lot of focus right now on just what an outlier the United States is on this issue. There are a lot of you know, maps and graphics going around showing that 
almost every other country in the world, even those far less wealthy than the United States, provide much more generous paid family leave, paid sick leave to workers. And the United States does not provide any. Originally, the plan was for 12 weeks of family leave. That got slashed down to four weeks. And something a lot of people were pointing out is you can't put a four-week-old baby in daycare. Daycares will not accept a four-week-old baby. They at least have to be six to eight weeks old. Even the so-called compromised version just didn't really jive with what happens out in the real world. There's a lot of advocates and others raising objections to these changes, saying this shows how out of touch many lawmakers are with what working people have to deal with on the ground. Are there worries about the political consequences for Democrats if they can't deliver on issues like this? I think a lot of people saw the photo yesterday of Gillibrand kind of begging Joe Manchin with their masks on in the Senate hallways. And, you know, that photo is so stark. It just looks like people fighting over something that a lot of people consider really essential. Like, what are the fears for Democrats there? Absolutely. So Democrats, there's so much pressure on them to deliver right now because there are very well-grounded fears that they could lose the majority of either the House or Senate in next year's midterm elections, and they won't have another chance to tackle some of these issues potentially for many years to come. And so this is sort of a do-or-die moment for them, both because they might not have another chance, but also to have real tangible wins that they can show on the campaign trail next year to campaign on to say, look, you gave us the majority and we used it to really deliver on things that you need. My last question for you is, Democrats have had to compromise and cut out a lot in this bill to work with each other. But what are some things that look like they're going to stay in this bill that people might get excited to see? Yeah, so I really am tracking the healthcare side of things in particular. So I will say that several years of expanded Obamacare subsidies will be in there. The White House says that'll help millions of people have cheaper insurance plans going forward. There is also a plan for extending that coverage to people in the so-called Medicaid gap. So there are still a dozen states that have refused to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. This includes some huge states, Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. And so this will allow a lot of for uninsured people in those states to enroll in coverage. It's not as extensive as people originally wanted, but it is in there. Alice, thank you so much. I know it's a busy day. Thank you. Great to join. All right, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... An FDA advisory panel has voted to recommend Pfizer's COVID vaccine for kids ages 5 to 11. Here's what you need to know. This isn't the FDA's full final approval, but that could actually come as soon as next week. Though what all 17 members of the FDA's panel said was that the benefits of giving Pfizer's vaccine to kids under 12 outweighed the risks, which include a severe but extremely rare form of heart inflammation. And to further reduce risks, kids get a third of the vaccine dose given to adults. Even after dialing back the dosage, clinical trials showed Pfizer's vaccine for kids was safe and 90% effective. Next up, that's the sound of protests in the African nation of Sudan earlier this week. The context here is pretty depressing. In 2019, pro-democracy protesters in Sudan toppled the country's long-standing dictator. Since then, there's been a power-sharing agreement in place between the military and civilian leaders. 
But that ended Monday, when Sudan's military arrested the acting prime minister, plus the transitional government's leaders, and opened fire on those who weren't happy about the military trying to take over. Now, Sudan's possible path to democratic governance looks uncertain. And this coup has seriously rattled the international community. The World Bank and the U.S. have suspended aid to Sudan. And even the African Union said, you can't have a seat at our table. For our next headline, let's turn it over to U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The clock is ticking. The emissions gap is the result of a leadership gap. But leaders can still make this a turning point to a greener future instead of a tipping point to climate catastrophe. Here's what you need to know. The UN's annual climate talks are set to kick off in Glasgow, Scotland on Sunday, and world leaders are expected to show up to the party with stronger goals for cutting emissions. That's because this year's agenda includes looking back at how much progress has been made towards the Paris Climate Agreement since it was signed six years ago. Spoiler alert, this status check is going to be anxiety-inducing. A new report released this week by the UN says we're nowhere near the targets set out by the Paris Agreement. Last year, global greenhouse gas levels hit new record highs. And now, to avoid global temperature increases that could majorly destabilize the planet, countries will reportedly need to cut emissions from where they are now by 55%. How's that for a to-do list? And our final headline this week, the U.S. is introducing a new gender option for passports, X. Here's the context. Until now, if you're applying for or renewing a U.S. passport, you've had to choose between male or female. Now, there's a third option, which is huge news for the millions of Americans who are non-binary, intersex, or gender non-conforming. That's because it means they'll no longer have to list a biological sex that differs from their gender identity, at least on a passport application. The U.S. isn't the first country to recognize a non-binary option on its passports. A handful of other countries have had the option for a while, including Canada, India, Pakistan, and Australia, which, credit to the Aussies, first rolled out the option way back in 2003. And in the U.S., that X designation will likely be available to anyone updating their passport in early 2022. Though, unfortunately, the passport office hasn't made the rest of the application process any easier. So we can't guarantee your passport renewal will go any faster. Next Tuesday is an election day. We're still a year away from the big 2022 midterm elections. But some of the races going down next week could shape what the major fights next year look like. So buckle up for a whirlwind tour to three states to learn why the 2021 elections matter in 60 seconds. Our first stop is Virginia. Virginia may be for lovers, but lately it's for really close elections for governor. This one's between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin, but it might as well be a referendum on former President Trump. McAuliffe hopes painting his opponent as Trump 2.0 will energize Democrats. That may have worked for California Governor Gavin Newsom in his recall election last month, but Tuesday's vote will test if it's a good strategy going forward. Next up is New Jersey, where Democratic Governor Phil Murphy is in a re-election race that experts say will test the popularity of progressive policies. 
In office, Murphy's tightened gun laws and passed a wealth tax and taxpayer-funded community college. And on Tuesday, we'll learn if that's enough to make him the first Democrat re-elected as New Jersey's governor since the 1970s. And finally, the Minneapolis-Minnesota mayor's race could reveal how popular calls to reform the police actually are. The mayor of Minneapolis has opposed calls to cut police funding, even after the murder of George Floyd, while his two top opponents favor replacing the police department with a new public safety agency. Other mayor's races in Cleveland and Seattle could also test whether voters actually want police reform or want to strengthen law enforcement, with violent crime on the rise in major cities. How'd we do? Want us to skim another topic from the news? Tweet at us at The Skim with the hashtag SkimThis. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. So this week, we wanted to talk about how to be there for friends or family members who miscarry. Some of this is hard and could hit close to home. We've left some links for those dealing with loss and grief in our show notes. A miscarriage is when an embryo or fetus dies before the 20th week of pregnancy. And miscarriages are way more common than you probably think. Up to 20% of known pregnancies are lost, most of them in the first trimester. All of which means it's pretty important for us to know how to talk about this. We often don't share with the people who really could support us. That's Dr. Natalie Crawford. She's a fertility physician based in Austin, Texas. She says when she had her own miscarriage, she hadn't even told people that she was pregnant. Nobody knew what I was going through, and I didn't feel comfortable calling somebody and saying, I didn't tell you I was pregnant, but now I'm miscarrying, because that's just a hard jump to make. So I, I encourage my patients when they get the positive test, I say, tell the people in your life who you need to support you. And there are other benefits to talking about miscarriages more widely, including that it could help debunk some of the myths we've all heard. The most incorrect things I see about miscarriage, one is that people are convinced they've caused their miscarriage by something they've done. So, oh, I went for a run, I caused my miscarriage. Oh, I had sex, I caused the miscarriage. Oh, I had a piece of sushi. There's this internal guilt that some action or behavior that we did actually resulted in that. When the truth is, no, the number one cause of miscarriage is random genetic abnormalities that increase in prevalence as we get older. Most women at age 35 have about a 25% chance of miscarrying. That number usually shocks most of them. It goes upwards of 50% if you're over 40. So what do we say if this happens to someone close to us? Dr. Crawford says, like telling someone having a bad day to cheer up, avoid saying things will get better, even if eventually they will. Some of the worst things you can say to somebody is, you can always adopt or use donor eggs if it doesn't work because it minimizes your current plan A and what you're working so hard to achieve. And it makes it seem like those things are easy to achieve also, which they themselves are not. The other really terrible things focus around miscarriage. And people are not trying to be cruel, but an early pregnancy loss, often a friend will say, at least it was early. Oh, it wasn't meant to be. That wasn't the right time for you to be a mom. And those statements really hurt somebody who's in the moment who's going through it. And I tell everybody, even if you don't know what to say, be honest and say that. I care about you and I don't know what to say in a moment like this. 
but I'm here for you. Like that is a very impactful, meaningful, honest statement that's not minimizing the experience or making the person feel more isolated for what they're going through. Dr. Tamika Zori, a fertility specialist in San Francisco, has another suggestion. Ask what you can do. If a friend approaches you with infertility or what they're struggling with, like one, just listening and listening, but then not necessarily having to offer unsolicited advice. It's easy to want to say like, oh, well, you know, just relax and it'll happen or, you know, just take a vacation and it'll be okay. But like, it truly doesn't work that way. If, if it was that easy, like I wouldn't have a profession if everyone could just relax and get pregnant. There, you know, there are true issues happening within the biology of what's going on. And so I think just being supportive and asking what they need, what can you help them with in terms of this process and not necessarily giving them advice that they weren't seeking. The climate crisis is here. Time is slipping away to stop the worst effects of global warming, and we need solutions. Enter How We Survive, a podcast hosted by Molly Wood that dives deep into the economics, tech, and the human stories behind climate solutions. This season, they're tackling electrification, one of the simplest solutions to get the planet off of carbon-emitting fossil fuels. We need to electrify, well, everything— our cars, power grids, homes, and businesses. But doing so relies on batteries, and most batteries require a metal called lithium. And the hunt for it is driving a modern gold rush that could save the world, but that also relies on a really old, dirty technology, mining. To follow the stories of climate solutions to every corner of the world, check out How We Survive wherever you get your podcasts. Every few weeks, there's so much news happening in the world of business, we like to throw it all together into a segment we call All Biz. And this was one of those weeks, as many of the world's largest companies reported their quarterly earnings, and in the process, told us a lot about where the economy's going. The first thing we've been watching involves prices. Prices on a lot of things we buy regularly, from milk to pet food to Chipotle burritos, have been going up in recent months. And there are a number of reasons for this. One is supply chain issues. Early on, that meant factory closures due to COVID. But then, as all of us started changing our purchasing habits and ordered new printers, kitchen equipment, and furniture, factory orders surged. Only, there wasn't a way to get those finished products to the people that needed them or at least to do it without raising prices. For instance, the New York Times has documented how China used shipping containers to distribute masks and other PPE all around the world at the start of COVID. But many of the countries it sent containers to don't typically export to China, meaning there was no plan for how those containers would make the round-trip voyage back to China to be filled up with your new patio furniture. According to the Times, it used to cost $2,000 to ship a container from China to L.A. before the pandemic. Now, it costs $25,000. Another reason prices are rising is that wages are going up, as companies race to hold on to the workers they have and attract new ones. Put it all together, and you get price increases for pretty much everything. 
a number of major companies are now saying that's going to continue. Kimberly Clark, the maker of Huggies diapers, Kleenex, and Scott's toilet paper, already raised prices once this year and said this week another round of price hikes is coming. Procter & Gamble, which makes men's and women's razors as well as toothbrushes and shampoos, is doing the same. According to CNN Business, soon some moisturizers from brands like Olay could cost you almost 20% more compared to the already high prices you might have gotten used to. And this week, McDonald's said that by the end of the year, it expects menu items to cost around 6% more than last year. For more on how rising prices and supply chain issues could affect your wallet or your holiday shopping, head on over to theskim.com slash money. The next All Biz headline that caught our attention this week involved the car rental company Hertz. Hertz announced they were buying 100,000 Teslas, promptly sending Tesla's total company value to over a trillion dollars, or to the moon, as Elon would say. That announcement comes just months after Hertz emerged from bankruptcy, so no wonder the rental company is looking to shake things up and rebrand, as environmentally friendly. Hertz says this purchase now makes it the owner of the largest fleet of electric vehicles in North America. It could also be one company feeling pressure to go green ahead of UN climate talks this weekend. More on that next week. As for those of us who just want to zip around in a Tesla for a day, Hertz says you might be able to rent one from your local dealership as early as next month. And there's one more company making headlines this week that requires a little more time to unpack. Facebook. Or should we say Meta? That's Facebook's new name as it plans an expansion into the metaverse. You can think of the metaverse as a virtual replica of the world slash fantasy world where you can meet with colleagues and friends, play games, and shop. As our new brand starts showing up in our products, I hope that people come to know the meta brand and the future that we stand for. If that feels like a kind of dramatic look over here pivot from a company that's still very much in the business of running social networks, you're not wrong. And one reason this rebrand is coming now could have to do with a bit of a PR problem Facebook's had lately. A Facebook whistleblower believes the company lies about how it handles hate and misinformation. Facebook rolled back safety measures after the 2020 election, allowing misinformation to spread ahead of January 6th. Instagram can be damaging for many teenagers' mental health. Why, if Mark Zuckerberg knows these things, have they not corrected them? Unfortunately for Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg, this PR nightmare is only continuing. Earlier this month, former employee-turned-whistleblower Frances Haugen came forward and revealed she took thousands of internal Facebook documents with her. And now, over a dozen U.S. news organizations are publishing stories from redacted versions of the documents, called the Facebook Papers. There's a lot of reporting out there, and to help us skim it, we're calling in Keech Hagee, a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. The thing that has struck me the most is the way that Facebook's algorithm privileges and really exacerbates the natural tendency in humans to argue and to sort of go for the most sensationalistic, divisive thing. I mean, even Facebook has said themselves, right, that this is just human nature. This is all the divisiveness is around long before any social media. And that's, of course, completely true. But what happened is Facebook built a machine to make it worse. Facebook's had an algorithm that decides what content you see for over a decade. 
But that algorithm got a pretty big makeover in 2018, when Facebook started to focus on what the company called meaningful social interactions. Basically, they wanted you to engage with content you were seeing, instead of mindlessly swiping past it. You might remember how instead of just liking something, you could react with an angry face or a heart. And when you did that, Facebook took a mental note and gave you more content to get that response. And to probably no one's surprise, that meant the algorithm promoted more divisive or inaccurate content that would get a big response. And these new Facebook papers reveal that Facebook's algorithm and its focus on engagement has had some pretty severe real-world consequences. They show that during the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Facebook staff watched chaos unleash IRL after they tried and failed to stop conspiracy theorists from gathering on the platform. The reports also reveal that Facebook lets accounts of high-profile people and some not-so-reputable news outlets say whatever they want, including false or harmful information. The company didn't hold those accounts to its community guidelines because they attracted a lot of users and created engagement, which, in turn, meant more money for Facebook. And finally, the Facebook papers show this obsession with engagement has contributed to human trafficking, ethnic conflict, and violence in countries like Ethiopia, Sri Lanka, and India. Despite this being a very, very rich company, they have not put the resources into making sure that there are local language teams on the ground able to identify what is hate speech, what is incitement, and swoop in and deal with it. I mean, Facebook, actually, they're not wrong when they say we have the most sophisticated systems on the planet Earth to deal with this stuff. They do. It's just that they still don't work or they don't work very well. So what we've learned from this project is the United States, we're getting the best version of it. They have nothing like those capabilities outside the U.S. and especially in some of the most dangerous at-risk countries. Hagee told us, stepping back, there's one common thread between all of these reports. Facebook, often when faced with a choice about whether or not to pull back, they chose profits over safety. So far, Zuckerberg has been on defense. Here he was on a call with investors this week. Is a coordinated effort to selectively use leaked documents to paint a false picture of our company. And while Zuck might be stressed about the bad headlines coming out about his company, his bank account isn't taking a hit. Facebook announced its latest quarterly earnings this week, and revenue for July through September was up 35% compared to last year, and their profits were up 17%. So we asked Hagee, what gives? Why are they still making money if they cause so many problems? One of the things that this reporting showed for me with great clarity is that Facebook is an excellent product for advertisers. It's really good at gathering up a bunch of data. It was just like uniquely amazing at giving advertisers a tool for being able to target people who are likely to buy something. That is just like an ATM machine that won't stop. But Hagee did tell us that ATM machine might be slowing down. Earlier this year, Apple introduced new privacy features that allow users to choose whether to have their data tracked. That seriously hurts Facebook's business model, And the execs at Facebook have started to take notice. Well, apparently Mark Zuckerberg wants to go into the metaverse, right? That's what he was saying during earnings. And I can see how one might want to escape to the metaverse at this particular moment. But seriously, it shows that I think they know like the advertising music is winding down. And so they have for for quite a while now, right, been looking for 
alternate ways to make money? Can we be there in the e-commerce chain? Can we be part of people's transactions online and not be so completely dependent upon advertising? Because that kind of advertising only works if basically you can snoop on people in an unlimited way. And what's happening both through regulation and through private choices is that that is, that is ending. This spotlight on Facebook has also caused lawmakers to look into other tech companies for how they protect or don't protect users. This week, execs from YouTube, TikTok, and Snap made their way to Capitol Hill for a hearing on how they protect kids on their platforms. And turning the attention on them kind of makes sense, considering most kids aren't even on Facebook anymore. You've already seen questions start to be asked of the other companies along the exact same lines, especially when it comes to teenagers and children and safety. And, you know, if you saw what what got people in power and people in Congress the most upset from our week of Facebook file stories, it was the Instagram and teen story, right? And that, I mean, that's the one that people were talking about. I had friends who were saying, you know, like my minister at church mentioned it from the pulpit. Like that's what people were talking about. That spoke directly to people's emotions and lives because everyone knows some young person who spends a lot of time on Instagram. And I, you know, I think it resonated deeply with people how dangerous that might be. And we also all know that like kids these days are all on the TikTok, right? So those same problems are going to migrate. Okay, we've spent a lot of time talking about the downsides of social media. But over the weekend, we came across a study that made us think maybe all that time on Insta isn't so bad after all. For me personally, Instagram is like my happy space. It's dogs. It's Noodle the Pug. It's friends who I know are also going to share dog posts. That's Jessica Myrick, a professor of media studies at Penn State. Besides clearly being a dog lover, Myrick is passionate about studying media and how we interact with it. And over the pandemic, she started to notice one type of post was becoming a lot more common. More and more people were using memes as a way to add a funny element to a really serious, stressful environment. I noticed for me at least, a lot of these COVID memes were bringing a moment of levity or even making me feel like I wasn't so alone or isolated or weird because other people were annoyed at the same things I was or experiencing similar things. Myrick started to wonder if the amusement and happiness she found in the memes on her feed was something a lot of other people were feeling. So she studied more than 700 other people, testing how memes, including memes about COVID-19, affected them. And good news for your younger cousin with the Finsta account. She found memes were kind of good for people. The maybe least surprising finding we had was that people who saw memes reported being in a better mood. They said they were calmer, more content, more amused than the people who didn't see memes. But what we found really interesting was that it was actually the people who saw the memes about COVID-19 who reported being less stressed about COVID-19. And that positive emotional boost also made people feel more confident in their ability to deal with the stress of the pandemic. If instead of texting or calling or Zooming, you started DMing your friends funny memes you saw online, turns out that's pretty common and has become an important form of connection. 
If you think about talking to someone one-on-one in a conversation and maybe you're tackling a difficult subject, if you do it with a smile or with a with a laugh, it just makes that person a little more approachable, a little more relatable. And so I think memes are just an extension of our sort of typical interpersonal norms that we have. And it's easier to talk about things when you're making a joke about it. Living life through this global pandemic, like there was plenty of serious content out there. So I think memes did serve as a real outlet for people to try to connect with each other. But before we all quit our jobs and start making memes full time, Myrick did caveat her study focused on upbeat and cute memes, not the most politically divisive ones. Still, if you're hearing this and thinking, wait, I spend a lot of time on Instagram, but I don't feel any happier, Myrick's got some advice. Think about how you feel when you use different platforms or follow different accounts and just mute or unfollow people who aren't helping you meet your goals. Goals being getting information that's important to be a good citizen, but also, you know, feeling good, connecting with other people. What might be helpful is to use different platforms for different purposes. You know, think about why you're consuming media in different time periods. And, you know, my advice would not be to to look at memes all day (laughs) because you wouldn't feel fulfilled. But, you know, if you have a really stressful meeting coming up, it might be helpful to, to look at some memes. And in that way, too, you can decide who to follow and not follow on different platforms. Actual advice to check Insta at work? We'll take it. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional support this week from Sajin Coriellis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you get your podcasts.